0: You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian
1: to introduce this week's guest.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today before we get to today's guest, just want to quickly let you know how you can help us out at the podcast. First of all, we love when you share these conversations. Share them on social, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is that you're social. Please continue to share these conversations. Send an email to a friend, a family member, and share. Uh, these people who I have the pleasure of interviewing really do have so much wisdom and, and so many intentional gems to share. So I think it's up to all of us to continue to share their messaging. Uh, thanks to all our guests, but also Thanks to the listeners who continue to share their amazing messages. Second, you can go over to patreon.com/slash intentional performers and over there you can subscribe to the show. You can give us $2 a month, $10 a month. We do not go with advertising on this show. So it's a way for us to try to keep this thing rolling and keep producing it and and making it as high quality of a show as possible. So thanks to those who have supported already. And thanks to those of you that will support us in the future. And lastly, we really, really, really appreciate when you subscribe. So go over to iTunes, subscribe to the show. If you want to write us a review, that also helps us out. So go over to iTunes, subscribe to the show show, and write us a review. Uh, thanks to everyone who continues to support this podcast. I can't tell you how grateful I am, and please continue to do so. So thank you. Uh, now to today's guest. So today's guest is somebody who I've gotten to know over the last seven years. Curtis Simons is an assistant basketball coach at Paul the Sixth, And I first met Curtis, uh, as I said, about seven years ago, probably seven and a half years ago. And I can remember first entering the gym and just hearing this older guy, uh, I'll call him older, he's 63, uh, just Yelling with enthusiasm and energy and clapping and he had the enthusiasm of a high school basketball player and curtis is a special guy because he basically volunteers as an assistant coach at paul the sixth paul the sixth is one of the top high school basketball programs in the country they're consistently ranked in the top 25 and i've been fortunate enough to work with them over the past seven years as well and curtis has a background in cable, so he worked for ESPN for a number of years, then went on to work for BET, Black Entertainment Television, and really helped BET build out their programming. And He's going to share how he did that and how he went from working and managing two people to 150 people, so he'll talk about leadership and his style of leadership throughout this conversation. Curtis then went on and and worked for the Washington Mystics, the pro women's basketball team here in Washington, D.C., and he'll talk about how he went to... Being an operations guy and coming from a sales and marketing guy and how he had to really become a novice again and learn the ins and outs of operations and what it's like to operate a professional sports team. So Curtis is an interesting guy. He is somebody that if you're in the Washington, D.C. basketball community, you either have heard him, you know him, or you will certainly run into him in the future. He's just very connected here in the basketball community and is someone who really considers himself to be a servant and really finds himself passionate about basketball, about community, and about giving back to our youth. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you, Coach Curtis Simons. Curtis. What's up, B? Great to have you on the other side of the river. I know it's always a challenge for Virginians to make it out to Maryland, uh, but now you feel my pain when I'm going the (laughs) other way. Uh, And, you know, Curtis just said, what's up, B? And you heard his energy. And... The one place I wanted to start with you is just this energy that you have. Uh, anyone that's ever been around you knows where you are in the gym uh, <laughs> and they know that you're in the gym. You have a presence about you and an energy about you that is contagious. And um, having been around you for a number of years with Paul the Sixth, it's consistent and it doesn't even matter who's in the gym you know, whether it's a freshman that isn't playing or a senior that is already um, going to a a D1 school the following year, you bring an energy and a passion to a gym that is different than a lot of other gyms I've been in. And so I was curious to start, where does that energy come from for you?
1: Think if I, I dig down, the energy really comes from my mother. My mother was a gym teacher for forty years, and I watched her for years. And she always was the life of the party. She always kept high energy. She was always able to engage her students to do everything, but but you know, jump backwards for. Her. And you know, she continued to do that. She's now ninety-one, and she still has that kind of energy. You know, you would know when she's in the room because she just had that kind of way of connecting with people. And over the years, I was able to really kind of build upon that. And I didn't really realize how good I was until I was about 23 years old. And my first mentor, um, uh, her name was Janine Cozad in Xenio, Ohio, said to me, said, Curtis, you're going to go a long way. And I'll tell you why. She said, you have a personality that's like engaging, you know, and people just gravitate to you. And if you use that right, you know, you will really be able to blossom. And I think it also is a combination when I played basketball as a point guard, I always wanted to control the floor. And it was all about making sure that I had all my guys engaged, always listening to what I was doing. I was a constant talker, you know, and because I had a love of the game, you know, I never let that fall off. And now I think the love of the game is the kids. You know, my whole thing now is just that I love teaching basketball to these young kids now. I missed it because I didn't play high school basketball. I walked on to play four years of basketball in college, which to me, that was a big miss.
0: Timeout. You didn't play high school basketball. No, I
1: didn't. Why not? Well, I was about 5'9, five, 5'10, five, typical short guard in, in, a, in a basketball program that was pretty much c-minute. And so every year in the trials up to my junior year, you know, I was always the last guy to get cut. And then when I went into my senior year, I just told my high school coach, and all the guys who knew me, I mean all the players knew me. They knew it. I I was I got I was the guy who got jerked around. You know, I told him, I said, Listen, you're not gonna stop me from playing college basketball. And I was fortunate to be I, I ended up um working all some uh, all fall and winter and just continuing to work on my game. I got really decent. And then uh, a friend of mine was being recruited at St. George's College in Rensselaer, Indiana. And I went along with him. And so when he was being talked to the coach, I just asked the Coach, I said, Listen, i like to walk on and play for you. And he said, uh, you think you can? I said, yeah. I, think. I said, why don't you let me just, I got my cut stuff out in the car. Let me work out with you guys right now. They had open gym. It was like May. I said, let me work out with you guys right now, and, and you tell me if you think I can play with you guys. So he let me do it. And uh, I did pretty well. And he said to me, you didn't play high school basketball? I said, no, I didn't. He said, i tell you what. You go and apply for school. If you get accepted, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the team.
0: So, this is fascinating to me uh, and I don't think you know this about me, but my freshman year high school, so basketball was my sport, uh-huh. and I was five foot six <laughs> on a good day and right. scrawny, right, but I think what in part drew me to basketball is I love guarding bigger guys, like yep. I was like, all right, let's go, it was a challenge, yep. and I never thought of myself as small like right. I just didn't it wasn't like, oh, I'm small, I'm like no, we're rolling out the basketball and let's go that's it and so even though I played soccer and I probably should have stuck with soccer, but um, that's neither here nor there. And I played other sports. Basketball is my favorite sport. In my freshman year, they cut me in the last cut. And I remember we're sitting around a circle and I'm looking at the other kids that are cut, and They're all small. Mm-hmm. And they just say, look, you guys have to get bigger and stronger. Right. But the mistake, as I as I tell it to a lot of kids today, is I took that and I said, F you. Like, right. I know I'm better than these guys. Right. And I didn't hit the weight room. Right. And I didn't work on my craft. Right. And I came back sophomore year, and I still think I was better than those kids, but they cut me again. Right. And junior year, I didn't try out. And senior year, I was like, I'll just try out again. And I I didn't make it. And I look back on that, and the advice I would give myself now is that, all right, you got cut. You can have that chip on your shoulder. That's okay. Yep. And you need to figure out, all right, well, what do I need to do to get better? And- you know, I wasn't the guy that was going to go to the coach and be like, "Oh, can I just be on the team?" I was like, "No, they cut me. Like, right. they don't want me. They're lost." That right. was my attitude. I'll right. show you. But I didn't then use it to actually listen to what they were telling me. And like I could have gone to the weight room. I could have right. gotten stronger. And the reason I'm bringing up my story is to go back to you. So you've got 4 years of someone telling you you're not good enough. Sure. What is it inside of you that says, "No, I am good enough to play at another level"? Like that's kind of arrogant, if you ask me. Well,
1: I I was able to. Number one, I, I did take the chip hard. You take the, the water chip, and so the way I did, it, I knew I was decent, but no, I I knew that I could possibly play at, another, at a at a higher level somewhere. Why though? Why would you even know that? Because I could hang with the guys that were that were on the team. I could hang. We when we went and played street ball. I was right there, you know, and and I, I was one of the best in the park. I mean, I was one of the best in the park.
0: Besides your size, was there anything else that would keep the coach, as you look at it now, a little bit older, a little bit more gray hairs? Uh, <laughs> uh, is there anything that you look back on now and see what he saw, or what do you think? No,
1: happened? he he, I mean, he had some good ball players. They were bigger than me, a little bit stronger than me, and I think that he didn't see uh, my progression. He didn't see that progression. Now, the one thing that helped me out tremendously is. My my best friends was name was Roger Carter. He was he was the number one guy on the team, and so Roger and I used to play one on one. He took my lunch money for two years in a row, and then going in our senior year, I started taking Roger's money. Then I knew I was getting pretty decent because Roger was really really good, and we played every day before school, you know, in front of his house. And I mean, we we used to go at it. I'm laughing
0: because it's so it's similar in the sense it's there's differences, and this is fun because I don't know this about you. Uh, even though we spent so much time together. Oh, sure. Um, when I was a senior in high school, we had an incoming freshman who you'll remember a name, Jerome Dyson. Oh yeah. And Jerome was a freshman. Right. And Jerome ended up playing at UConn and had right. a cup of tea in the NBA. And I think had a pretty good career overseas. Um, but Jerome came in this hotshot freshman, about six foot tall. Mm-hmm. You could tell, I was like, Oh, this kid can play at handles. He could, he could just play. Right. Uh, but I was a senior and I took basketball, uh, class. Right. And, uh, so I used to go in and I would just battle them mm-hmm. I'd be like, let's go, right. let's go. Right. Um, it never got me anywhere other than watching <laughs> Jerome, uh, as a freshman, he played JV and right. they brought him up in the playoffs and, uh, he ended up transferring out. But, um, it's fascinating because uh, the similarities there are that we both were like, all right, how do we go toward the challenge? Sure, But the difference is you still had this sense of belief this sense of knowing that if I keep competing, I'll get better, I'll progress. Right. And then this sense of like, no, I can play. Where I really, I think, um, I think I bailed. I think I was just kind of like, all right, the feedback I'm getting is not aligned with, I think my my mindset (laughs) and my own belief and, and so I bailed. Uh, and I don't have too many regrets in life, but as I look back on, on high school sports, that is something that I wish I had done differently. So I'm, the perseverance, the willingness to say, all right, I'm going to walk on at this college. Right. What was mom's reaction when you told her that?
1: Oh, I mean, she was, she was positive with it. You know I mean? She was the one pushing me. that I, She knew I was a decent ball player. And really, to, to take it back, B, it was even interesting. In my freshman, sophomore year, I was a hell of a football player. Okay. You know, I was playing quarterback. You know, and everybody thought really my career was really going to be football because I was quick, I was fast, but I'm have, I, you know, i I'm, I'm the quarterback at 5'7. Yeah. So every time I'm trying to throw a pass, I got to swing out to throw it. You know, and I had a decent little arm. I didn't have a long arm, I had a decent little short arm. I could throw 15, 30, 40 in the air, pretty decent.
0: But you didn't play junior and senior? No,
1: yet? I didn't play junior and senior because I started focusing more on basketball. Basketball became more of my love. And, and really the wake up call for me. And, Going into my junior year, I went to a basketball camp with the same friend I ended up going to college with. And it was uh, Claire B's camp in Monticello, New York. And it was one of the biggest basketball camps back in the day. I mean, it was unbelievable. That's what used to have, the old NBA Summer League All-Star game there beforehand. And when I went out there, there was like 150 kids, top kids, and I was blowing through all of them. I mean, coaches was like telling me, you don't play high school basketball, that's kind of amazing. You know, and, I, and that's when I knew then I had something, you know, my coach didn't see it back hometown, but other people could see it, you know, and, and coaches were telling me, you let me know when you become a senior, I'll look at you, you know, and so I knew then I had some skills, I just had to continue to fine tune it.
0: So you mentioned mom. Was dad in your life? What, what role did dad play?
1: Yeah, dad was in my life. My dad, my, my dad worked all the time. My mom and dad worked at the same place, Central State University in Ohio. Um, my dad was very, very instrumental in more of my football life because my dad was – our whole family from Bermuda. My dad was a big soccer player coming over. So he had a really good foot. He taught me how to punt and kick very well. I mean, back in the old days, a punt, pass, and kick. Because of him, I won a lot of local competitions. You know, because he just showed me how to really kick a football. As I got older, because of his work schedule, that was probably a, a, the other big miss for me is that I didn't have my dad on the sideline all the
0: time. What was he doing?
1: He was a, he was a maintenance guy. Okay, he was a maintenance guy at the college, and he had a, he had he had a part time job in the evenings, so he stayed busy almost sixteen hours a day. You know, basically, and so. That was a big miss for me. You know, uh, even when I went to college, you know, guys' parents would always come in. My parents never came up for my college games. Not until I came back in my hometown, for my last two years at Central State. My first two years at St. Joe, you know, they, they didn't come up much. And that kind of was, you know, when you look at the crowd, you always want to look and see your parents, especially when you know your friend's parents are there in the crowd. You know, and after the game, they're celebrating with their parents and everything. And I'm like looking around like, Phew. you know, I don't have that. Siblings? You know? Uh, i got one sister. got one sister and two stepsisters. Okay. And uh, my sister was really the one who raised me. You know, she's the one I'm I'm, I'm in love with. Uh, they're all three now in Bermuda. Um, she is the one who really stayed on top of my education side, uh, helped me out tremendously with my homework because my mom and dad were working a lot, and was one that's over the years has given me the right tools. She was the one that pushed me. She was the one that would come out and rebound for me at night when I was shooting. You know, she would always hang out with me. You know, and always keep telling me that, hey, I think you're going to be you know, a decent little basketball player. How much you older know? is she? She is uh, about five years older than me. Okay. You know, and I'm, and I'm really proud of her because she went her four years through Central State, and she graduated in three. She's really smart. She, was, she carried like a 3.8, 3.9 GPA, you know, and just really, she was a track star, too, and she really carried herself top notch.
0: Besides you know? the values that your sister passed down, what are some of the values that mom and dad passed down to you?
1: Oh, I think, number one, giving back, you know, that's probably the biggest one for me for both of them. Um, You know, people always say to me, why do I do so much Uh, giving back? It's because they taught me never to look over my shoulder and not appreciate what was given to you. And that's one of the things that, you know, in in my corporate life and in all my life, you know, I don't care if you're the janitor or the secretary, I'm still going to treat you just like anybody else in the building. You know, and that's one of the things I think has helped me in corporate America because, I've always been a team player and I learned that through them, you know, treat people like you want to be treated. And that's really a lot of give back that they taught me early on, you know, uh, especially my mom, because my mom, I saw her teach students who couldn't read or write real well and get them through four years of college, you know, and, it, and we have a college homecoming come up in two weeks and guys come up to me all the time and say, man, if it wasn't for your mom and I wouldn't have got through central state, man, I just want to tell you, man, I really do appreciate it. And that's one of the things I, I'm proud of My dad was really, uh, he also not only worked at the um, maintenance department, he also ran a student union uh, on the campus. So a lot of guys knew him through that. So, you know, he was the kind of guy who gave, they used to call him the godfather because he used to give people a lot of knowledge on life, you know, and a lot of people learned from him. So a lot of that really helped me, you know, and, and, and it took me to another level B because, you know, I look back at my career as an average student, a C student come out of high school, but now, I was the first, one of the first African Americans in our school to be in the Hall of Fame in my high school. A guy who never played any sports, you know. I'm now I'm now in the Hall of Fame at Xenia high school, you know. I made the Hall of Fame of St. Joseph College, you know, for a guy who never played high school basketball. I'm in there for Hall of Fame in basketball, you know. So that kind of thing is, is really something that I look at very strongly. And now I'm getting ready in three weeks to be put in the Cable Hall of Fame for my 30 years in cable, you know. So those three bucket list ticks for me were big, you know?
0: It's interesting. I heard Grant Hill speak last night and they were asking him about the hall of fame. Cause he was yep. just inducted in the hall of fame and they brought this up. And I didn't realize this, that he's the first Duke basketball player to go into the hall of yep. fame, Yeah, which is mind boggling. Yep. And so we talked about that experience and what it was like to get into the hall of fame. But when you think about entering the hall of fame in high school, in college, and now you're talking about professionally, what does that do for you? What does that feel like for you? What are the emotions that that elicits for you?
1: It's uh, it's emotional for me. I mean, it's, it's it's caring. You know, I you know I'm, I'm a guy <clears throat> from a very humble life. You know, so the first one to get it from my high school really blew me away because I'm trying to say why am I getting this Hall of Fame? You know, but it was more about my professional career and what I did at, at, outside of my high school. But they carried it by the fact that they they helped create me, which they did. You know, and I took that very strongly because there was a lot of people who helped mold me, you know, from my principal to a few teachers to people who really stayed on me to say, Curtis, you have something here. You got to take advantage of it. And then in basketball, um, when I got, we got our whole team, our 1974 team had the best record in the history of St. Joseph College School. We went to the final four that year, Division Two. You know, that was an unbelievable run for me. You know, you've been with us with Paul the sixth run, and you've seen us, you know, in the, in the WCAC. You know, from a college perspective, it was like, as a freshman, you know, unbelievable. And then 20 years later, to look at that and understand that you had the best record in the history of the school, you know, that was just beautiful. And-
0: you mentioned being a team player earlier and that you brought that to the corporate world as well. What makes a great team?
1: I think... What makes a great team is, is that the guy up top has to be humble. He has to understand that he doesn't have all the answers. And I think that one of the things that has helped me build uh, every place I've been able to step into. When I was at Continental Cable Vision was my first big job when I ran a cable system there. Didn't know anything much about running the cable system. I had like seven employees there. And, you know, the beauty of it was it was in my hometown, in Ohio. But the other thing was great about it was it was a very nice-knit family. And I got to know them from not only the work experience, but the family experience. We became a very knit. I mean, I knew everybody's kids, you know, first name, blah, blah, blah. And then they respected me because they knew I could get my hands dirty. I had no problem running up in attics and and, and doing uh, installs, climbing poles. You know, and if you show your people that you're not bigger than them, the appreciation becomes bigger than ever. And, you know, when I finally left there, You know, uh, one of my employees said, Curtis, there'll never be anybody like you because you were kind of the guy who not only you you led us in the right way, but you also showed us in the right way. And that's kind of been my motto moving forward through corporate America. I went to ESPN. I had three or four employees over there, and it was all about showing them, them that I could roll my sleeves up and could hustle. I also showed them that, you know, some of their ideas work. You know, I don't have all the ideas, you know. So if you've got something that makes sense, bring it in. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. And then I really got the picture when I was at BT because I, I went from a staff of, I walked in the door in 1988 with two people. When I left, I had 150 working for me, you know. And it was where I grew that department, but was able to really manage it to where we worked like clockwork. And we grew the subscriber base to, from 18 million to 80 million when I left, you know, which that's kind of my history. You know, there.
0: So you're talking about successful teams. What about non successful teams? What what do you think gets in the way of teams maximizing their potential?
1: Well, let's just let's, let's just look at just what recently happened at the Riders Cup. You know, eagles are, are big things. Eagles are big things. If you can't put your ego down and really recognize who's beside you and what they look like it and, and, and not about, you know, I'm better because it is I could I can, can putt better than you can or I can drive better than you can. You know, you have a hard time being successful. And it kind of bowls over in in the corporate life, you know, on that.
0: I'm glad you brought up the Ryder Cup. So it's a fascinating situation where you've got this American team that is considered the best American talent. Uh, Some people argue ever. And, you know, the European team, not as much. And uh, (laughs) golf... Yes, the kids, a lot of them play college golf, but I've been around college golf and you don't pass the ball to each other. No,
1: no, no, not at all.
0: Your job is to go low. Got it. And, you know, it, that's how you can help the team. So take care of yourself and you'll take care of the team. And it's fascinating because the Ryder Cup, you see, this opportunity you see the guys love it because it's an opportunity for them to play for something bigger than themselves you saw with the olympics when they added sure. the olympic uh, golf experience and you had these pros and they said no pros are going to go play in the olympics right. and the guys that went said this was an incredible experience are no coming every time we're no invited
1: question. no question
0: and there is something about team that is special which is one of the reasons i've Always wanted to be a part of Paul the Sixth. Is I do a lot of work. We're in my office now. It's one-on-one work, um, but it's isolating and it's not collaborative. And um, it's different than when you're part of a team. And like you're saying, you've got opinions coming from all different places, and that beauty is amazing. And we see it so often in sports where the most talented team doesn't always win.
1: Oh no, no question. No, no question. I, you, you just, you just hit it right there, B. You know because. I've always been a strong proponent, and you've seen it with us at, be at uh, part of six. But well, we've had a few talented teams, but we haven't been the best team on the floor. And we've you won know? with really talented exactly. teams exactly. that
0: didn't necessarily exactly. get along. So so talent can overwhelm. Yep. Talent can uh, – I like. I don't like this – idea that oh it's just about culture or it's just about mindset no no like talent matters and by the way if you were six foot two and could dunk in high school you would have been on that basketball team so uh i I think it's important to note that talent matters and at times talent can overwhelm and overcome a lack of uh connection or cohesion however it's limiting and it's hard to be consistent and to build championship caliber organizations if it's just talent um so yeah riff on that with me for a little
1: well, I, I think you just hit it earlier I, I think you know one of the things that i love about golf is that it's a one-on-one situation and it's also a mind it's also you got to have your mind folks i mean i looked at tiger's situation when all that thing exploded uh years ago and i said he'll never be the same because now his mind has drifted he can't focus the way he should have focused, where he could have focused in the old days. When he just came in, it was golf. Now he's his mindset after that whole situation, for example, is well, what's the public opinion of me? You know, what about this? What if I hit a bad shot? What are people gonna think? Because he had been so consistent out there. So my look at my take on the the Ryder Cup, for example, is that they had the talent. But they didn't have their mind when they were talking about just reading an article, you know, about reading and and, stuff the other day, you know, arguing, you know, in the airplane flying over. So you're in an airplane for like three and a half hours as a plus as a golfer. Well, you should be really focusing on, hey, man, let me get my mind set for this. And you're sitting there arguing about who's playing and what's who's going to set. So you're coming in with not your right mind. Now, you just mentioned it earlier about DePaul the Paul the Six times when we had high level talent who was kind of a mess. But the one thing that's also interesting is when you learn to also put that away and let your talent just play the game. And that's what we were able to do in 014. Manage it. Manage it. Manage it. I mean if you can if you can, you know, I don't have to like you off the field, but on the field I'm gonna play with you. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a that's a big, big opportunity there. You,
0: no. It's. I love that you talk about like, and we've talked about this at Paul the Sixth, And, you know, I look at the the Kobe and Shaq Laker teams sure. where those guys didn't like each other. No. It's it's very clear now. They've come out and basically said, no, oh, no, we, no. Know, we didn't like each other. No. But they had a mutual love for each other on the court. And I think that is something that also gets lost in that, you know, teams, you don't have to be best friends. No. But when you step on the floor, I got your back. You got my back Right over every, you know, I've done work with DC United and we soccer, they talk about all the time, like do you have my back? What happens if someone comes in hard and tackles me? You know, in football, you see it with offensive linemen and quarterback. You can see it in every sport, like a team that really has each other's back and a team that doesn't. Um, And so I think that team as, as that we're referencing had each other's back and had mutual respect. There was just challenges. Um, When you have a lot of talent, it it is a blessing and a curse because playing time matters. And when you have a, kid that's being recruited at a high major school and he's not playing you know in some ways you don't blame a kid and they're like I should you know I, I can
1: play I right? mean you, you look back at time you know time you know it's not funny you, you we're talking about this because one of my best friends now is Sam Jones He played for the Celtics eleven World Championships and Sam and I always get in this, competi- this conversation about talent because when you really look at the, the Celtics in that era they were not a talented team they were just a team who could play together. And they believed in Bill Russell and Red Arback, who they would never let down. And those guys had guys at a particular time. Like I was asking them, the year that um, the he, uh, they always show this game, with the year that um, the Lakers with Jerry West and Chamberlain were up on them like 3-2 playing at L.A., and the Lakers already had the balloons in the ceiling to celebrate. All they had to do was win, and they went to they win the series. And Russell walks on the floor and says, brings all the guys together and says, Yo, look at this, man. These these guys are celebrating already. So they're telling us this ain't gonna be a game. They're gonna tell what do you guys think? And he said, That fueled the fire. We went in the locker room and everybody was like, This this thing's going back to Boston. We're gonna get this thing back to Boston. They went.
0: It. it it's it's an incredible thing. I, what went on in my head as you're describing that? You said they had Arback and they had Russell, and then everything filtered down. And I'm thinking about Belichick, Brady, filtered down. Oh yeah, Popovich, Duncan, filtered down. Yep. And even the team that I'm thinking of is when you had LeBron James first go to Miami, and yep. they had Wade, and they had Bosch. Yep. Um. And then you have Dallas with Carlisle, Dirk Nowitzki, yep. filtered down, uh, and certainly Spurs team uh, when they beat the Heat. Um. Uh, like one of the greatest series of basketball is that Spurs team where those guys were not in their prime anymore, No, but they played this beautiful brand of basketball and were able to overcome the talent of the heat. Um, But there is something interesting when you have a CEO, quote unquote, uh, or you call it a head coach, a CEO, and then you have a superstar and that relationship when it's special, the ability to then filter down from there and divvy out roles and find ways to plug and play. Uh, it's just when, when you have the superstar and the head coach or the CEO and, and the top salesperson, or wh- however you want to look at that dynamic, um, it, it's really fascinating. I want to go to your days at BET because sure. you talk about starting with running a team of two sure. and then expanding it to a team of 150. Sure. How did that change for you from a leadership standpoint when you're managing two people and then you're managing 150? It,
1: it, it didn't change much for me, B. It, it was really a growth plate, as I would put it. You know, we went from, the, the thing that did change is we went from a family-type atmosphere to a corporate-type atmosphere. That's what kind of was the change it, 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 around BT. Now, one of the things that was, was very important for me coming in the door with Bob that, that I loved is that, when I took over the running the affiliate marketing department and sales, one of the things he said to me about the gates is he said, Curtis, for you to be successful, you have to look at the affiliate marketing sales department as your company. And you are the CEO. Now, how are you going to put that in place to grow the business? And that mentality stuck with me, B, all through my career at BT. You know, because I said to him, I, Susie said that, said, Bob, I'm fine with that. As long as you don't micromanage me. If you allow me to run my business, then I will be, I will drive this baby home for you. And so that's what he was able to do. So the, the thing that I tried to do was in every step, I tried to find people who fit, as you said earlier, roles in helping me try to grow in different areas. Because I blossomed from running affiliate sales and marketing for BT to being president of our action, uh, a pay-per-view channel called Action Pay-per-View. I also ran our international business. I also ran, uh, started up our jazz business. So I'm running four businesses with four different elements going on, you know. So I'm now jazz. I'm, we're doing international, so I'm jumping from South Africa to London, L.A. Along with trying to keep the distribution flying with BT, along with trying to grow a business that was really that we took over called a pay-per-view business called Action Pay-per-View. You know, so it was all about being able to get the right people around me that I didn't to Bob's word, have to micromanage them.
0: Would you look for a certain quality? Like what when you're hiring somebody that to fit a role, is there a quality or a value that you're looking for that you might value over a different value? The value that I
1: looked at, and I get a little, it's amazing. I run into people all the time who used to work for me, and they're doing pretty decent now, is um, I look strongly at their personality. Because to me, sales is all about, I tell people every day, sales is all about getting to know people and having them appreciate you. Once you get that trust, you can make any call in the world and get business. But if they don't trust you, then they're not going to do business with you. You know, and so, what I try to do is bring people in and help educate them on that theory. Like I would always preach every, at every meeting: relationships, relationships, relationships. Got to build relationships. And if you ask any of my old employers, they'll say that's all Curtis talked about. He just talked about it. And, and and relationships. You know, like I would tell all my young ladies that worked. For I had a bunch of young ladies that worked for me, and um, I said to them, "Out the gates, learn about sports." I said, because when you go in a cable operator's office, office to ease the, ease the conversation, you're like, hey, I saw something, the football, I just saw such, such, such. what you think about that? All of a sudden, the guy melted down because now you're talking his level, that sport. Then you ease back in the conversation on, hey, but look at this contract, though. I need you to sign this BT contract. How do we get this done? And I said, you start learning how to talk to these people in their language, makes life a lot easier.
0: You know, one of the things we've had Paxton Baker on the podcast, who we were talking about before sure. we fired up the mics, and I didn't ask him this, and I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. As an African American man um, working at a company like BET, certainly in the DC area, I didn't know too many prominent African American company isn't Black Entertainment. I mean right. like it it is a special organization yes. when you think about what that means and the success of that it's it's pretty historical and then Bob Johnson who you're referencing who started it ended up going on to be the first African American to own a major sports team no in Boston, uh, the Charlotte Hornets and um so I'm just curious of the pride factor and you know, how much that played for you as you're building this thing out. Uh, is that something that you felt? Is that something you were aware of? How do you think about that as an African-American and building something out that you know is specifically for a population of people?
1: I think it's what's special, be because when I decided to, when Bob called me in the, um, uh, the start started conversation started probably in the, late winter of 87. And basically, Bob is a tactician on how he talks to you. You know, he was—he called me one day because me and him would basically hang out at cable shows. We knew each other. He's like, "Curse, hey, man, look, I'm looking for somebody to run my affiliate marketing. You know, if you know anybody, you know, have them call me. And so I, you know, I didn't think no more about it. So I hung up the phone. I thought, I thought to myself, wait a minute. I could do this. So then I looked at my situation at and I was... I just got promoted director of affiliate marketing in Chicago. as one of the, all the Midwest region. But then I knew, oh, oh and, and then I had also in between there, be, had, had tried to apply for a VP slot because my boss had got bumped up and, and, and his position came up. So the current, one of my best friends at Cable ended up getting the job, George Bodenheimer. with well, George and I were equivalent. And so when George got the job, I had to now report to George and you know how that is. When you're equivalent with a guy and now all of a sudden you've got to report to a guy that you've been equivalent with, you know that's not going to last too long. So by the time I got the call from Bob, I knew I had hit the wall. And I said, you know what? This might be a good shake. So then I sat down with Bob at a cable show and we started talking about it. And I had heard all the horror stories about Bob. He, he's, he's arrogant. He's, you know, he's a chauvinist. He's this. But people don't really know Bob Johnson. God's got a big, big, big heart, man. The guy's a real, true blood, all about your family. He's trying to do the best for you, but because people, you know, you have to put a shell up. Because once I got on with BT, I understood more about it. But the conversation we had, I just said, "Listen, Bob, I'm willing to come work for you, but you gotta let me do my thing. If you're not gonna let me do my thing, I'm not coming." He said, "No, no, Curtis," you know, and we really hit it off really well. And so the pride factor was there for me. I was 32 years at the time, years old, and I said, hey, you know what? If I don't make it, I got an EVP stamp on my resume, you know? And all my buddies in the industry, like I said, what are you doing? You're leaving the number one cable service to go to the, the worst cable service in the business right now? I mean, they're, 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 laying, they're laying on the fence. I said, listen, I think I can make this thing happen. So my first job, day on the job, I was living in the guest quarters of up in Georgetown because we were in we were in Georgetown with our office at that time, um, on 31st Street. And so I walked out the office one day and walked down the street, saw five African-American people, said, Hey, I work for BET. Do you know anything about BET? And each one of them said, B.T., what are you talking about? What is that? I came back to Bob next day and said, Bob, we got a brand problem. I said, Here we are, the nation's capital. We've been here eight years and no one really knows who BT is. I said, so we've got to build a brand here. So my coming out the gates was how do I build this brand? And so then it was all about, I knew I needed to get the community to start buying in with me on it. And we really didn't have a cable operas because, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny when you're um like with the ESPN or you're with the number one server, everybody answers your phone. Now I'm a BT. It's like, hey, Curz, let me call you back. I'll, I'll call you back in a couple of days. Let me get back to you. you know, no, no urgency at all now. So I had to be real aggressive you know, getting in the door. So because of my relationships with um, the ESPN days allowed me to get in a lot of doors that other people couldn't get in. And then we began to start making some movement on the network. But to your point, yes, the pride was big. Because once you know, Bob didn't even really know. How big this thing can get? That that's what really shell shocked Bob. When I originally came in to BT, Bob said, "Listeners, if you can get the network to thirty million homes, we got a big time business, and we can raise affiliate fees a few cents. We got a good business." I said, "Okay." I raised it to thirty within a year. Okay. All right. What's the next move? Well, what if we got to fifty? All right.
0: Push it. Can you, can you take me to that time? So you're 32 years old, you said. Yeah. And you're coming from ESPN and you're working for this black sheep of a cable company. What was your day like? What, walk, take us back to that time in your life See, and my, what you were doing.
1: My day was was unbelievable. I mean, when I, my first six months, I was cranking about 12, 14 hours a day, mm. you know, uh, because nothing was there. You know, uh, we had no affiliate contracts. So I had to bring over stuff I used to use and just change stuff around. Um, there wasn't much done. Because, see, in the old, when I first came on, what Bob had handled through the affiliate marketing side, he had contracted Time Warner because Time Warner was the owner of us. So Time Warner was, was basically had, had hired out a couple of African-American people. Um, I forgot the name of one well, of them. It's a good friend of mine. Passed away, in fact. Uh, Don Hill. And... and um, they were handles two of them. They were handling the whole United States for BT, and that's why Bob wanted to get somebody in here of his own so that he could build something around it. So I had to start trying to. And then, see, I knew a lot of the people coming in. So the first thing I had to do was he had had this one young lady, her uh, name was Roslyn Dokes, very good friend of mine. Ros was was kind of running it for him. So then I had, I now and now over top of Doc Ros, so I had to now try to get her into the loop of working with me, which she did very well. And then I had uh, a couple other people, uh, Tula Anderson and Robert Beeman was my PR person, and they just we all worked. We worked as a team of four people. That means cranking.
0: So you're 32, you're working your tail off, um, and you're at BET for a while. So talk about. I think you mentioned earlier it started as this family, and then it really turned into a corporation. Um, talk about as it's growing and booming. Look, uh, you're 30. You're 32 is when I was sort of coming of age. You won't, Talk about your age. Um, <laughs> <No problem. laughs> but, but like I grew up uh watching BET because I I mean like I'm in the suburbs yeah. and I'm white and but I loved rap music. That, and, and so for me, like I'd watch 106 in Park. Right. And I would watch BET and look, I would also watch MTV. Uh, and there was even a time where I would watch CMT and there was another music, like a Canadian music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I watched some they of that. Were, right. So I think I just liked music, but I would, at least my taste was, uh, my my number one was hip hop. And, you know, I'd flip over to BET and that's where I would watch music videos.
1: Well, that was the explosion for us. You know I mean? You know, we tried to figure out how we were going to really grow the business. Because at that time in 88, a lot of the urban markets were not totally built out. They were so we were in basically partial markets, in major markets, DC, LA, Chicago, and then everything started building out. And then we started getting really big pops on subscribers, okay, at the same time. The other thing that picked up was exactly what you're talking about. I mean, African Americans only make up 12% of our populations. But because we were really making the noise and music was the thing so was hitting us so well at that time. There was more non-African Americans watching BET, so it made it very compelling. When I would walk in, I said, it was funny. We got a—you haven't met Jackson yet. He's a new young gentleman that's going to be coaching with us at, at uh, PVI, but he's from Oklahoma, and he's like twenty-something now. And he's like, "Because when I was coming up, that's all I watched. All my friends watched was BET." I said, "That's just how it was." And then what really blew me away is the first time I took Donnie Simpson, our biggest VJ, out in the street to a market where I didn't think anything happened. We hadn't stepped off the plane and people were treating him like he was Michael Jackson. You know, in a market you were like, what, are you Are you kidding me? I mean, and that's what told me then that this was a very big crossover network, you know, and it was really tapping more people than, than Bob. And like the first time we got into Canada, Canada was a very interesting situation. So when we got into Canada, you know the mark they went because Canada was a very tricky market to get into. You got to you got to go through the what they call the FCC type part. You got a petition, then you got to have the cable operators show support that they want to carry the service because you got to go through all this munition. But it was amazing the people that stepped up in Canada who were non African American wanting the service and how that's how we got in the door. And it's yeah. also it's it's dollars like it, yeah. Like
0: I was watching, I would skip over VH1, yep. maybe I'd mess with MTV, and then I would often settle at BET. I remember the channels were like all right next to each yep, other. Yep, um, K- K- yeah,
1: yeah, K-Barber did.
0: Yeah. And so, uh, but it is a, it. it's a fascinating, the, what music can do for our society. It's very hard to be racist. Right. If you're, you're bobbing your head along- yep. Uh, You're like right. the, the Spike Lee movie that just came out. I remember yep. they're they're talking about the music, right? Uh, Black Klansman, right? And they're like, oh yeah, like that's pretty good, exactly. And all of a sudden they're like, wait a second, I'm bobbing my head, It's right. like, what are you talking right, about, exactly? Um, and I know for my generation, like we really grew up on hip hop. We grew up on rap, sure. And uh, sure, there are people that loved rock music or mm-hmm. you know jam bands and different type. But for me, at least, that was where I, I gravitated to. And when you're in the suburbs, um, some suburbs, uh, are more or less diverse than others. Sure. And so sometimes that's your glimpse into another culture and you break down barriers by just listening and you can empathize, you know, when Tupac's talking about sure. what's going on in my community. Um, you know, I'm hearing that. Right. And even what it does to the subconscious, I think is, is really important. Um, were you musically, I mean, you're talking about going from ESPN, which it sounds like from a young age, you had an, a passion for sports. No question. What was it like transitioning from sports to music? And was there any music in your background that, that sparked that? I mean,
1: no, not really. I mean, I like the network and I think it goes back to your earlier question on the pride. I mean, it, the pride of being able to work for a black mm. business was special to me. And, and you know, you felt very proud. You know, I would, I cre- I'm I, the one who created a lot of the BT t-shirts, jackets. And I, was, and I mean, just to see how people cherish that, you know, and they would break their neck. We'd go in the market, you know, and give away a jacket or something. People would break their neck to want to get that jacket. And people till today, you know, call me about it, still trying to get it. And I think really one of the ices of the cake years ago was we were doing a big cable show. And when, uh, Evander Holyfield was really hot. Um, He was at a cable show really in another booth, but me and him had struck up a really good relationship. And so he wanted me to give him a jacket, which I did right there on the spot. And the next day, he's on Fresh Prince, you know, doing the show. And he's wearing a jacket. And you talk about blow up. Oh, man. I mean, it went to a whole nother level, you know, just him doing that. Product you know,
0: placement before product placement was really a thing. At no
1: charge, <laughs> at no charge. <laughs> and he was world champion at that time. Amazing. You know, I mean, it was unbelievable. But I think what you're saying, you know, the 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 the, the paraphrase that you're making a good point on is that the music was a big player, and um, and also too, artists felt comfortable, much more comfortable talking in that environment on BT than they did on MTV or others because they felt it was real because they were talking to the people, they were being interviewed by, and a lot of them. A lot of the artists were like you saying. A lot of them came up already watching Donnie, so they cherished the point to be able to sit down the the you know video uh, video uh, video soul seat. You know that was a hot thing. That was a, that was a big commodity.
0: So you leave BET um, and you have a run with the Washington Mystics, right? Um, talk about that experience for you and what you learned and. And what that was like being part of a professional sports team.
1: Oh, I think that's one of the best experiences I had. Uh, and I'm going to credit uh, Ted Leonsis and uh, Sheila Johnson for allowing me to spread my wings. Because I came on board really not knowing anything about running a professional team. And I learned as I went. I mean, I was still the day I was telling somebody a story about the other day. I won't ever get first day on the job, you know, I get called into uh, Susan's office. Susan O'Malley. Susan O'Malley. And she says to me, hands me seven folders, because I come in at almost the tail end of the se- mystic season. She's to me seven folders to Curtis. You're now running all the operations for that time, you know, the, cap- the Verizon Center. And I'm like, I've never ran a game before. And I guess the beauty of that that really educated me, I never knew the behind-the-scenes work that is put into orchestrating an NBA game or a WNBA game from the timeouts, to all the giveaways, to all the performances, to the day-to-day operations, it's a lot, you know? And um, it really brought me into a whole different frame of mind on running business, you know?
0: So what's it like for you? You have an expertise, you know, sales and marketing, that's, you know, you've built out this niche for yourself. Sure. And now you're going to really, it sounds like, such a big operations job, what was it like for you going from being an expert to a
1: novice? Oh, it was education. You know, I mean, what, the beauty for me is that, you know, I'm, I'm now 63 years old, being and every day I'm trying to learn. Every day I'm trying to learn. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. And so I take every opportunity to try to see how I can better myself. Because one of the things I learned early on in life is don't put yourself in a box. Be able to have some versatility of what you do from top to bottom. And so I tried to really learn as much as I can like I when I came to the Mystics not only did I want to learn how to run the Mystics I also wanted to learn how to run the clock you know um, run, know what's going on with the officials you know and, and so I dug into a lot of stuff just to get myself knowledgeable about all the aspects of running an operation
0: Well, it's an amazing experience. And you talked about earlier showing leadership rather than talking about it. And I mentioned your energy off the top and how when you come into a gym, you hear Curtis. Mm. You notice Curtis's presence. But I also watch you talk to the refs. I watch you talk to the parents. I watch you rebound for kids. Um, And I watch you take on this leadership role uh with Paul the 6th that is very similar to what you're talking about having learned at the different stops along the way one of the things i've always been curious about is why why and you mentioned earlier like i feel obligated to give back um why why are you involved with this high school basketball team um and you know to paint the picture for everyone i come in and out with Paul the 6th and have for seven and a half years and um, you know, so I'm not always there, but every time I'm there, Curtis is there and Curtis is in study hall with the kids. Curtis is in the weight room with the kids. Curtis is rebounding after practice with the kids. And you are the one constant other than coach Farello that I always see. And so I've never really had an in-depth conversation as to why. So, I would love for you to share that with me
1: I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier b is the number one the love of the game um and that you know as I said I mean one of the things that um I did not experience in life that I feel very special with politics is high school basketball so it's almost like the, the the constant line that you hear about from people you know living through high school basketball with Paul politics is my high school experience okay so I've always liked being around kids. I like the fact that uh, we have a good set of parents and, we're, and they're able to talk to. And, and you know, knowing my background, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be around 33 years in this market, grew up in Ohio. But I know a lot of the people in the basketball circle now. Um, and that's allowed me to really um, come into the gym and, like you say, talk to the refs because I know 90% of the refs. Come in the gym, talk to a lot of the coaches, college coaches and and high school coaches because I don't want a bunch of them. And also continue to try to develop these young men because they need so much help, man. And they don't understand when they get out that door of Paul VI after four years, how tough it is. You know, they're living a good life. Mom's feeding them. You know, we're taking them all around the country playing ball. But I keep trying to invest in them that there's a different world after four years and you need to understand that and embrace that. And so my time with the parents and with the kids is to constantly try to re up that word and let them know that the more I care, you know, I, I, I try to stay in contact with the majority of the kids that played for us. You know, um, I just try to stay on top of, them, you know, make sure they're not slipping, even though they're out here now. And now currently I'm trying to stay on the kids who are there and say You can get better. You know, this is what I expect of you. And I think because, I think a little bit because of my age, I think a little bit because, to your point, I'm around the program probably more than any any, any other coaches. I have a lot of respect from, like, yourself, the parents, the players, you know, because they know, the players know that they can come to me and get a lot of the answers because they know how close I am to Glenn. And so, you know, I'm going to be straight with, you know, and tell them exactly what what sometimes they don't want to hear, but sometimes I'm going to tell them what they hear. I'm curious to
0: get your thoughts on this. I was at a conference and I talked to a guy named Dave Pentagraph. And sure. Dave has been around the NBA for a long time. Long time. And now he's with the Dallas Mavericks. Right. And we were talking and um, I've been fortunate to sit in at the NBA Combine mm-hmm. and be in war rooms and just be around the draft process now for uh, probably like 10, 12 years. Sure. And Dave and I were both commenting on – the kids that are coming up now and that they're interviewing at the combine are amazing kids and smart and emotionally intelligent. Mm -hmm. And the way he said it is like, I'm interviewing these kids at the combine today. And you know, these are the people I'd be comfortable with my daughter marrying. Right. And he said that was not the case um, 15 years ago. And I've seen it transform. And I'm curious to get your thoughts just because you're in you're you're in it. You're in the weeds on this. Um, I have my theories, which I'm happy to share, but have you noticed a change? Uh for me it's it's progression. Um, but have you noticed a change in the kids? Uh and, and obviously I'm generalizing here, mm-hmm. but the kids today compared to maybe fifteen years ago, have you noticed any shifts yeah. or change?
1: I, I would say that number one the kids today um uh have a lot more caring you know uh than some of the kids in the past um they appreciate let' me use that big word appreciate the opportunity to play the game some of the kids the problem of basketball and the problem of sports now more than ever is it's been a given sport it's been a given sport it's been it's been like oh he can play football okay he can play baseball he can play basketball he can play soccer you know, but now kids are understanding. I got to put some work in here. This is the sad part about. On the flip to what you're saying is, to that point, today's kid is. You, every time you talk to him, you got you got hear this line. Oh, I got to talk to my trainer. What do you mean you got to talk to your trainer? You know, oh, oh, my trainer over here does this for me. My trainer, you know, that's the only thing I think has gotten a little bit out of whack of today's kid. I think the personalities, you know, they've gotten a lot better. I think education-wise, now kids are caring more about their grades, and they're seeing it. And they're hearing the horror stories of the kids that, you know, had talent but couldn't get the grades or went to college and became an asshole, you know, that kind of thing, and didn't make it. And so, you know, uh, they see it. You know, and and like in our program, the biggest kid now is a reflection of that is Patrick Holloway. You know what I mean? When he walked out as a senior, everybody thought he, he was a step away from the NBA. And he flattened out at George Mason, you know, and so he tells the story. He's open about his mistakes he made. And he tells kids now, you know, hey, you don't want to follow this road because it was wrong. He said, I took the wrong path on this. But people tried to warn me, but I didn't listen. And I think today's kids listen more. And so they're trying to understand what better steps they need to take to get there.
0: Yeah, I believe in polarity and paradox. So I think sure. nothing is ever all good and nothing's ever all bad. It right. depends on the perspective and, and how you look at it. Um, what I see today is a more polished kid. Yeah. Um, what I see today is a more articulate kid, yeah. um, a better educated kid, yeah. um, a more professional kid kid yeah. and there are negatives that come with being a professional at 16 years old mm-hmm. uh and what to your point having a trainer and being so vision oriented that right. you're not just lost in being a 16 or 18 year exactly old. um the flip of that is these kids are so driven they're so clear on what they want and um to your point the guys look if you are an uber talented seven foot freak there's going to be a place for you in the nba no question however if you're a borderline guy the nba today says we're not dealing with you um and actually social media today basically says we're not dealing with you because uh there's accountability now if you're going to say stupid things on social media or do stupid things team's not going to mess with you no question um and you look at this in every sport, but we'll just stay with basketball. Um, There is accountability now for your character in a way that you get weeded out whereas in the past you could kind of get away with it yep. because you were only an asshole in the locker room right? Um, and they just managed it right? you know today it's like no you're also an asshole when you go to a radio interview yep. you're also an asshole when you are interacting with the usher right. and you know we don't want you to be part of our culture right. and so I think there's an awareness now of character and a propping up of character so they'll take a kid in the NBA who might not be as talented but they know hey he's going to be a good person for us to have yep. on our roster so you're seeing it from the top down happen but i think the the thing that this is a theory of mine when i was growing up i talked about jerome dyson earlier jerome did end up going to a prep school um but he spent his first two years at a public school Mm -hmm. and today there would be almost zero chance that jerome wouldn't have been playing in the catholic league in washington dc right and um, You know, we had a kid, Isaiah Swan, who played yep. and went to FSU. He played in Montgomery County. right? And yep. Montgomery County isn't necessarily the hotbed that Prince George's County right. is in Maryland. We're talking inside baseball right. here. Mm-hmm. But um, one of my theories is, is that they are going to private schools. And these kids are surrounded in an environment that values education and values character yeah. and they get to be mentored by people like you. Yeah. Um. And we were talking about before the mics turned on. And for people that are listening to this outside Washington, DC, the Washington, DC Catholic league is the best basketball league in the country, no question. but also the schools that these kids go to are not, this isn't a school where you just play basketball. No. These schools, they care about education. Yes. They care about the type of let's just focus on the boys. They care about raising men. And if you don't do that, you won't be there. Yeah. And so there's an accountability there. And you have parents to your point that say, we are going to invest in either our time or our money to get our kid there. And a lot of times it takes a lot of travel. And so there is an investment that you have to put in, in order to get out what you want to get out. No question. And I think that that's happening all over the country now, where these kids are going to private schools Um, and I'm not even saying that's good for all of society, but if we just talk about basketball, you're getting kids that are being experienced uh, and in in environments where, yeah, you should be articulate. Yeah. You should get good grades because it's cool, uh, where, you know, teachers care about you. And unfortunately our school system, our public school system does not provide that to everybody. Exactly. Um, so I think that's a part, that's my theory is those kids now are are going to private school and then AAU, which is a whole nother conversation, but they're now mixing in with other kids that are also going to those other private schools that are, it's an expectation. Yeah. You should get good grades. Right. Yeah. You should um, go to, you should go to class. Right. Like right. being ineligible, not, not cool, man. Right. Exactly. Um, whereas I know in my public school, like there were kids that were ineligible that could have played basketball, could have played football, but they mm-hmm. just didn't have the grades. Yeah. Uh, we had an amazing running back. Uh, at at the high school I went to and I'm not sure he could qualify uh, to get into college. And if that kid had gone to a private school, I, Honestly, I think the kid could have played in the NFL. So um, that's my theory. I'm curious to get your opinion because you're closer to it than I am.
1: No, I, I, I think you're, you're right on point on that. I mean, I think number one is that your environment, your, your environment it dictates where you, how you fall. You know, if you're in a good environment that makes you feel well about yourself, you got caring from a teacher's perspective, you know, you're going to do well. If you're in an environment where, you know, they just kind of, you know, like days ago, don't care whether or not you show up at school. Don't really call to your house and follow up on you. You know, you're going to fall into the trenches. It's very, it's very simple. I think that, I think you're right. I think the one thing that I've seen over the years, and I can only rephrase to Paul, but I, I would, you know, catch that and say that a lot of the private schools are like this. Education is is number one. Number one. I mean, we provide, like I think of probably other schools, study halls for our players. We have a uh, advisor stays on top of it. And we try to keep the parents v- well-informed if, if someone's falling off, you know, because we know that in order for them to be a good student athlete, they've got to get the books, and that's number one. And we try to preface that. This ball's not going to bounce forever. Sure. Not for all of you.
0: So I want to finish by giving you a megaphone sure. to promote anything that you're passionate about or anything that you think deserves a megaphone. Uh, so I just want to give you some time to promote uh, whatever you think Deserve some promotion. Well,
1: I appreciate it, B. And I guess the, the biggest thing I like to try to promote is that um, I'm building a digital network around historical black colleges called the HBCUX Classic Sports Network. And I think one of the things coming out of historical black colleges that I believe has not been the, the, the um, not has happened rather in the past is exposure. And what this channel will do, I hope, is begin to start trying to get these schools more exposure and try to get some more student athletes who think everybody thinks they're D1. But there's a lot of good HBCU schools out there like Howard in this area, Bowie State and others that could be good elevators to get you to the next level. Everybody's trying to get to the next level. Well, here's a word of advice. If you can play, they will find you. Doesn't matter what school you're at. You know, history has shown that. So, that's one of the big things that I would like to just tell, tell people out there, if you know anyone that would love to support it, give me a call.
0: You oh, know. Awesome. And one of the things I wanted to close with is uh, you have a massive impact on the environment at Paul Six, and I've seen it and i referenced it today. Uh, and I think it's important to note that I have watched you take time to work with the kid who's probably not going to play division one basketball. Sure. And I have seen you care about that kid the same way that the kid that has an offer from a big time program. Sure, And I think that type of environment of just caring is what makes Paul the six a special community to be a part of. Uh, and I think a lot of that does come from you. Uh, we've had many, many conversations about the 12th guy on the team yeah. uh, as well as the, the the top guy on the team. Sure, uh, And I love that you just care about people. And I think at the end of the day, Uh, that is your calling card. And I think that's where your energy comes from is this value of relationships and of humans. And uh, it's been great to get to know you over the years. It's
1: a pleasure. And I really appreciate you having me on today, man. I've been following you and I I love the opportunity.
0: Awesome. Look forward to many more conversations in the future. Uh, People can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then Instagram or intentional underscore performers. Curtis, thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks, B. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. You know, I mean, what, the beauty for me is that, you know, I'm, I'm now 63 years old, being, and every day I'm trying to learn. Every day I'm trying to learn. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. And so I take every opportunity to try to see how I can better myself. Because one of the things I learned early on in life is don't put yourself in a box. Be able to have some versatility of what you do from top to bottom. And so I tried to really learn as much as I can. Like I, when I came to the Mystics, not only did I want to learn how to run the Mystics, I also wanted to learn how to run the clock. You know, uh, run you know what's going on with the officials. You know, and, and so I dug into a lot of stuff just to get myself knowledgeable about all the aspects of running an operation.